This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Scripture is unclear whether Nehemiah went back on his own to serve under Artaxerxes or if Artaxerxes summoned him back to serve under him. But either way, he was back in Shushan in the palace serving the king. And that's where we're going to pick up today as we close out our series for the city. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, lead, guide, direct. God, I pray that we would find closure in this final chapter. God, I pray that we would understand and Holy Spirit illuminate your, your word to us. God, I pray that when we leave here today, for those who've been able to be here for uh, all or nearly all of the sermons in the book of Nehemiah, that we have a greater understanding of this book, a greater understanding of what was taking place and why it's important. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for loving us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Nehemiah has settled back in there at his role in the palace, serving the king. He somehow gets word, and we're not sure how he gets word, uh, or maybe he already had a visit planned. Maybe he said, I'm going to go back and serve the king, and then I'm going to come back to Jerusalem after a certain time. The Bible doesn't say. But for some reason, uh, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to see how everything's going. So keep in mind, everything was going great. The people had revival. The people made a covenant to God. Nehemiah said, okay, I'm going to go back to Shushan and serve the king. And then he comes back. It's kinda, it kind of reminds me, if you're a fan of the show Undercover Boss, you know, ever, anybody ever watched that show? All right, anybody ever watched that show and not cried? I'm not gonna lie, that's a, it's a tearjerker for me. There's been, there's been a couple where there's been, there's been some amazing stories. But the premise of Undercover Boss is your boss is there and you don't know it. Um, and most of the time it's a big, big, big boss like corporate CEO, so most workers that are working don't even know who that person is or they may know that person by name, but they never could put a face to that name and so that boss is able to kind of see what really goes on, right? What really goes on in that organization and not what they are given, uh, you know, by report every month, but they get to see what really is taking place. And I kind of picture that as Nehemiah's like, you know what, I'm just going to go back to Jerusalem and see how things are. I'm just going to show up. Um, and by the way, that's not a bad thing. But either way, however he showed back up, whether he was undercover boss or whether they sent word back to him to come back, he returns, and we're actually unsure of the amount of time that's taken place. In fact, the only thing we know is that this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13, is the final chronological chapter in the Old Testament. That's all we know. Um, it, this is closer to the New Testament than the book of Malachi, even though you're looking in your Bible and you're like, no, Malachi's right here. Um, no, chronologically, it is closer to the New Testament than even the book of Malachi. At the very least, I believe... Nehemiah had been gone six months, three-month journey back to the palace, a three-month journey back. I mean, at the very least six months. I would venture to say uh, more than that. I would say years possibly had gone by. But like I said, it's enough to where the 13th chapter of Nehemiah is the final chapter of the Old Testament. Nehemiah returns and he finds a group of people who have turned back on their covenant. I, I told you at the beginning, and I I'm not sure... Uh, if you remember this, I believe it was the first week I said, this is not a fairy tale sermon series. This is not 
things are going good, something bad happens, and everything works out in the end. Uh, this series is not a series that's on your Hallmark Christmas li channel list. Okay, this is not, you know, girl uh, from the big city moves back home to the small town, boyfriend in the big city has all the money and all the fame, and high school boyfriend is back at home and he works at like the gas station and we all know how it's gonna end right it's I mean she's gonna get back with the high school guy and they're gonna pump gas together it's amazing but not just the man things are going good oh no here's the the villain right in the story the devil or whatever and now everything's gonna be good again I, I warned you that this sermon series and this book does not end with a good light in a good light in fact he finds the people who are have turned their back on their covenant he finds the people who are no longer experiencing that revival that they experienced just a couple of chapters before he finds people who have traded the spirit-led life for a life led by their flesh they've traded their new life for their old life let's look at what takes place nehemiah chapter 13 if you have your Bibles, great. If not, it'll be on the screen. Number one, I want us to see this. They made room for the enemy. They made room for the enemy. You're going to see it. Look at verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore I threw all of the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Did you catch that name? Tobiah. Did you catch that name? Think about the full story of the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah was traveling to Jerusalem back in the beginning of the book. They were opposed by two men at that time, Sanballat and Tobiah. And then as they began working on the wall, they added another guy, Sanballat, Geshem, and Tobiah. And then they added yet a fourth person, and they didn't say a person, there was the Girgashites that came, they completely surrounded them by working, and guess who was involved in that opposition? Tobiah. An obvious, blatant enemy of the children of Israel. He made it obvious. He had opposed them on at least three different occasions and, and possibly a fourth occasion. Tobiah specifically had opposed the children of Israel and what God wanted to do in their lives. This was the Tobiah that, that tried to kill those that were attempting to rebuild the wall. This is the one who plotted to have Nehemiah killed. Remember they called him out tried to get him to come out and meet them, and they were going to kill him and take the city captive. And just several months or maybe a couple of years have gone by, and we find the children of Israel have not, not only opened themselves up for the enemy, 
they had cleared out a space for the enemy. They had brought Tobiah into the house of God and moved the things that from, from the covenant. They had removed the things that the people had given and they had made a, a room in the house of God for their enemy. Tobiah's personal goods were in there. Literally, they gave him an apartment in the house of God. They had gone from fearing the enemy to finding a room for the enemy in their house. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And can I say this today, uh, followers of Jesus? We better understand who our enemy is, and we better, make, and we better take regular Steps, and we better take regular, uh, we, we better have regular times in our lives where we take inventory and we look around and we say, are there, are there places in my life where I've literally kicked out the good and allowed the devil to have take root in my life? Listen, these people, in just a matter of months, in just a matter of a couple of years, they had brought Tobiah in. And once again, I, I want you to understand this. It's not that they said, oh, Tobiah is okay. They literally said, Tobiah, come live in the temple. Come live in the house of God. They literally made a room for him. The leadership there. It's incredible to me to see how far down the children of Israel had gone and allowing their enemy room in their, in their temple. We need to mark our enemy. Can I say this this morning? Your enemy is not some other brother or sister in Christ. Your enemy is not a family member who won't just stop. Your enemy is not that person that has been slowly getting on your nerves over time at your job. Your enemy is Satan. Your enemy is the devil. And sure, the devil uses tools and he uses sometimes people. I understand that. But they are not your enemy. He is your enemy. He is your enemy. And let me, let me just say this was very plain here that Tobiah was the enemy, but yet we find the children of Israel giving him place. May I remind you this morning that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the devil. And God forbid that we as, as followers of Christ, that we as husbands or wives, that we as moms or dads, that we as believers... Let the enemy in. There's a lot of practical things that we could take from that. I'm not going to necessarily this morning take that time. But I think we all understand that there are areas in our lives where if we're not careful, we will give the devil a stronghold back in our lives. If we're not careful, we'll open up that door and before we know it, he's made his room again. By the way, did you catch that? They kicked out, they had to remove the good. In order to make room for him. They had to remove all of the, the, the giving and all of the, the oil and, and all of the grain that had been given. They had to remove all the good in order to make, make room for the enemy. So first we, we see that they, they had made room for the enemy. Remember their covenant. Remember the covenant. They had made, now they had made room for the enemy. Secondly, this morning I want us to see this. They neglected the house of God. They had neglected the house of God. Look at verse 10. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? 
And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse uh, Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites, Padiah. And next to them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Nehemiah has to, has to clean up very quickly. He finds that that the house of God had been neglected so much that the priests and the Levites and the, the servants had to go back out. The singers had to go back out and work in the fields because they were not being taken care of by the house of God. You remember the covenant that they made, correct? The covenant? The covenant that we highlighted back last week. The covenant in verses 32 through 39 in chapter 10 where every single verse mentions the house of God and how they were committed to providing for the house of God and they were committed to making sure the house of God moved forward. You remember that covenant? Well, they had gone back on that covenant. In fact, we, we saw them fully committed to their place of worship and now we see them going back on their commitments to their place of worship. They had stopped giving. They had stopped bringing their first fruits. In fact, the church leadership had to return to their, to their jobs in the fields, leaving them less equipped to serve and work as church leaders. What we witness here, if I can be honest, is I feel we witness the negative side of Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I believe that's a positive verse. Hey, listen, where your treasure is, man, your treasure's in a good spot, your heart's in a good spot. But there's a flip side to every truth. And I think what we see uh, here, we see the people's treasures no longer given to God. And no wonder when the people's treasures had stopped being given to God, no wonder their hearts followed very quickly. No wonder this morning that they, they stopped taking care of the house of God and they let an enemy come in and, and take root and live in the in, in, in the place of worship. Not, no wonder this morning they, their hearts were gone from him. They had removed their, their, their faithful giving to the house of God. No wonder they were struggling with their hearts. Can I say this? If you make a commitment to giving through the house of God and through God's work, I would take a massive spiritual assessment before I discontinued or decreased what I did there. If I can be very real with you, is that okay? Um, my wife and I, back about five or six years ago, uh, began giving um, a, an offering. This was above what we gave to our church. We, we began giving an offering to a church plant that we just loved and we had a heart for. We began giving a certain amount every month. It automatically came out. We never really thought about it, but this was just above what we gave. And... Um, over the last year, uh, year, year and a half, as we were preparing to buy a house this past year and things, and we were, we were getting some things in order, I said, you know, I want to cut back on everything that we don't have to do. Let's cut back on some of those things. And um, I'm like, you know, I said, we've been giving for five years to that church, and I mean, it's not a lot of money, but I mean, it's, it's a bill for something that we could put towards that. I said, you know what, I'm going to go, and I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to stop that. I mean, they probably won't even notice it. I'm just going to stop it. So I go in, I'm like, cool, I'm going to go to their giving web, the website, I'm going to go to the give thing, and I'm going to be able to adjust mine. Well, I couldn't figure out how to do it, and I'm pretty savvy with that stuff. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. So I'm like, okay. So I, I figured out what company it was um, that runs their giving, so I called them. Hey, listen, I give to a certain 
uh, church that, is, that uses you guys. I was wondering if you could help me. I really, I've got to discontinue my giving uh, to the church. And um, if you could help me with that, I really, I would appreciate it. And they're like, sir, actually, uh, we can't do that on our end. Uh, the, actually, the only way you can do that is by contacting the church and, uh, and letting them know. And I'll be honest with you. I, I, looked, I told Sarah, I said, there's, there's not a chance in this world that I'm going to call them and have them stop that. There's just not a chance. Sorry, I'm not used to having this microphone. Uh, there, there's not a chance. You know what that's, I believe that was the Lord saying, hey man, I'm going to take care of you. Like keep taking care of other people and I'm going to keep taking care of you. And I don't say that to boast this morning. I actually tell you that my flesh and what I wanted to do, I wanted to stop giving. So like this was, that was not a prideful thing that I'm trying to do this morning. I'm trying to tell you that I wanted to get out of it. And God was basically like, nope, you're not going to. And if you're going to, you're going to kind of embarrass yourself by having to call that guy. Wasn't going to do it. At the end of the day, can I just say this? They had obviously gone back on their financial commitment to the house of God. And you take that however you want that and apply that to your life, however the Holy Spirit applies that to your life. That's not my job this morning to apply that to your life. But all, all, all to say for me, um, it was a warning. It was a fair warning for me uh, not to go back because when I go back on my financial commitment, I am telling people where my heart is no longer. Telling people where my heart is no longer. Thirdly, I want us to see this this morning. They ignored the Sabbath commitment. They ignored the Sabbath commitment. I'm not going to preach this uh, much, but I do want us to see this. Um, look at verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions, Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contented with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. For that time, from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. I wanted to read that because I think it's prevalent. They, that was a key part of the covenant that they had made last week, right? In that chapter 10. The covenant that we went over last week. One of the main pieces of that covenant was that they were going to honor the Sabbath, in that they were not going to buy and sell on the Sabbath day. And they had gone back on that. They were not only buying, but they were selling. There was business being done on the Sabbath. Not only that, but fourthly, they compromised the purity covenant. 
They compromise the purity of God. I, I, I'm sorry this morning. I apologize for, for having us read so much scripture here at church um, as we preach the Bible. But we're going to be in verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them, listen to this, and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, even him, to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Just by the way, in case you were wondering whether it was nationalistic or whether it was uh, spiritual, it was marrying pagan women. So I know that some of the language can can maybe come across, but it was marrying pagans, those that didn't believe in God. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Hmm. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also, um, I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah wasn't messing around. I mean, Nehemiah, he went at these people. Notice what he said. He was pulling the hair of some of them. I mean, this was not pretty. Uh, Nehemiah saw the impurity in their families, the fact that they had married pagans. Remember, it was the fact that they were marrying people that were unbelievers. And he went all in on them. In fact, we noticed that the high priest, Eliashib, his grandson, had married into the family of Sanballat. Once again, the enemy. Once again, we see that Tobiah had been given a room in the house of God. And now we see that the high priest's grandson is marrying a family member of the enemy of of Samballot. They were compromising their purity by literally marrying into their enemy's family. And this morning, I... I wish this book ended differently. I really do like the last statement that Nehemiah makes. Remember me, oh my God, for good. I, I, I love that statement. I, I, I believe Nehemiah said that as he probably stood there kind of defeated. As Nehemiah stood there in, within the walls of Jerusalem thinking, God... In chapter 10, you know, a couple years ago, things were just different. The people loved you. The people served you. The people committed themselves fully and wholly and 100% to you. And here I stand as their leader. God, would you just remember me for good? I, 
I did my best with the calling that you had on my life. God, you, you led me to do this, and God, just remember me. I mentioned this wasn't a fairy tale ending, and this is not a fairy tale ending in this book. This is a historical documentation of the plight of the children of Israel as the Old Testament ends. That's what this is. This is telling us how it was as the Old Testament ends. They fall away yet again. Just like they had done time and time and time and time again. Old habits die hard. Time and time again. They had fallen away. But I believe we all understand this, and I want us to grasp this. This final chronological chapter of the Old Testament, there's a period of 400 to 415 years of, of biblical scriptural as far as the canonization of scripture goes. No documentation in scripture. There are some books that were written during that time period, but none of them included in the Bible. This final chapter of the Old Testament ushers in what we now know to be the supremely important supernatural birth, life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus, the promised Messiah. The one who would come and under the new covenant, he would save his people, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Consider these parallels from Nehemiah, the leader of the children of Israel, and Jesus, the Savior. Both cleansed the temple of impurity. If you remember, Jesus went through, and it's like every angry preacher tries to say, well, Jesus went through and turned over the tables in the temple so I can be mean and angry to everybody. He did that once, like chill. He was really kind like 99% of the other time, right? Like he went in one time and kicked over some tables. But they both cleansed the temple of impurity. As we know, Nehemiah did, had to cleanse the temple, and the people covenanted to purity there. Both had initiated the renewal of a covenant. Uh, Nehemiah helped the people in chapter 10 walk through the covenant. and the, Remember the priests and the Levites, they all confirmed it. Nehemiah helped lead that, and then obviously Jesus initiating the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant that the gospel would bring. Both called followers to follow them and to build. For Nehemiah, it was building physically the walls and the gates and the doors of the city of Jerusalem. For Jesus, it was to follow him and to build his kingdom for all of eternity. Both experienced oppositions and even plots against their lives as we know Nehemiah did and Jesus spent his earthly ministry three and a half years being either the greatest hero or the greatest villain depending on who you asked so much so that they wanted to that they crucified him both looked at their God-giving work and could say it is finished even here in Nehemiah as he closes he not only looked at his work at building the wall but as he closed the book, he kind of gives it that final, okay, God, it's finished, remember me. And as Jesus was hanging on that cross, and he uttered those words that it, it is finished. You see, as bad as Nehemiah 13 
leaves us. Literally the next significant voice in the, in the history of the world was a man by the name of John the Baptist. The next voice we're going to hear is the voice of John the Baptist. And that is the cousin of Jesus, the voice of salvation, the great evangelist who would make way for Jesus. The very next significant voice we hear. The next voice we hear is that of John the Baptist. In order for God's redemptive plan to take place, there had to be Nehemiah. There had to be the, the Israelites turning back to their sinful ways once again. I put it to you this way. There had to be a Nehemiah 13 in order for there to be a Luke 2, a John 3.16, an Acts 1.8. In order for everything that's going to happen in the New Testament to take place in God's sovereignty, there had to be a Nehemiah 13. God used these events to further show the Israelites that they could not keep the law. He further used these events to let them know that there was something greater in store, to prove that there was a once-for-all sacrifice that was needed for the ultimate salvation of everybody. God in His sovereignty knew that Nehemiah 13 was necessary in order to usher in grace, in order to usher in Jesus, in order to usher in the good news, in order to usher in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you cannot fully accept and understand the good news of the gospel of grace until you understand that you are in desperate need of that grace. Until you come to grips and look at the law in Nehemiah 13 and see how you've broken it and broken it and broken it and broken it. You see, you cannot understand grace until you've come to grips with the law. You see, you cannot understand the New Testament until you've come to grips with the Old Testament. You see, you cannot fully comprehend salvation until you have fully admitted your sin. You may be here this morning and you feel like your life is embodied in Nehemiah chapter 13. You keep making commitments to God and you keep going back on those commitments. You keep committing your life and your, your finances and you keep committing your relationships. You keep committing your family. And you keep committing your job. You keep committing everything that you are to God and it seems like six months later you're right back where you were. And can I tell you this morning that there is good news. That Jesus came and he brought with him that new covenant. That covenant of grace. That covenant of of mercy, the gospel. And can I say this to you, Christian, who finds yourself stuck in Nehemiah 13? You can find rest this morning. You can find rest this morning in knowing that there is another story that's written after Nehemiah 13. You can find rest this morning knowing that there's another story on the other side of your sin, that there's another story on the other side of your struggles this morning. And that story was penned by Jesus. And that story was kicked off by Christmas. That story was kicked off by what we're going to kick off next Sunday. It's actually a perfect segue into our Christmas series. It was kicked off by the birth of Jesus Christ. It was kicked off by Jesus Christ living a perfect, sinless life. You know that life that you can't live? 
and the one I can't live, the one that I desperately want to live and I cannot do it no matter how hard I try, that sinless life, perfect life. Jesus came and lived that. And here you and I stand in, in our sin, continuing to struggle with sin, but Jesus lived the perfect life. And the wages of sin, we're told in Romans chapter 6, are death. That penalty, the payment for sin. And we deserve it. In fact, somebody has to pay it. God is a just God. If he says the wages of sin is death, then, then a wage must be paid. But we know that you don't have to pay that wage and that I don't have to pay that wage. Because why? Because Jesus did. That death had to be paid. It had to be. Jesus came and he paid that. He died the death that you were supposed to die. That death as a result of sin. Jesus came and he died that death on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. We don't serve a savior where we can go to his coffin and, and, and leave uh, candles burning or, or, or leave food or leave drink for him. We serve a risen savior that you can go today and you can see his grave. And you can walk in his grave and you can walk back out of his grave. We serve a risen Savior. He rose in victory. When He rose in victory, He rose in victory over sin. You can have freedom from the power of sin in your life. He rose in victory over death. Listen, when death knocks on your door one day, it can be good news. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Listen, He rose again in victory to give you abundant life. Eternal life. Sure. In heaven one day, sure, but abundant life today. Abundant life right now. Spirit-filled life right now. Can I ask you this morning, if you find yourself in Nehemiah 13 and you've never experienced John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If you've never experienced that this morning, I don't care if you've grown up in church. I, I was a pastor's son and I was 19 years old before I gave my life to Christ. You're among friends today. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your story is. I don't care what you wore today. I don't care what, you, what happened to you this week. I don't care what your bank account looks like. I don't care what your, what your boss thinks about you right now. I don't care. All I care about is that Jesus loves you and that he wants to save you. This morning, if you've never trusted in him, it's nothing spooky. It's just God the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart. And you're surrendering and saying, God, I repent. Jesus, I believe. God, I repent. Jesus, I believe. Would you bow your heads this morning, Heavenly Father? As we ultimately see Nehemiah pointing to the gospel. As we ultimately see Nehemiah pointing to the new covenant. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.